I want to encourage you with courage today as we get into the word for these next few minutes. Uh, an epitaph, maybe you're familiar with the word. Let me give you a working definition. An epitaph is something in which or by which a person, a time, or an event will be remembered, especially as an inscription on a tombstone. Uh, so most of us are familiar with an epitaph as an inscription on a tombstone. It's that statement that's made about a person's life. And uh, it's pretty significant to think about what you would write in stone to immortalize a person's life. And I was thinking about some of the men in, in the Bible that, uh, that have some great statements about them. In fact, as I was thinking about some of these verses, I thought, you know, I mean, I'm not planning a funeral or anything, but these are words that I would love to have said about me. If you were going to etch something in stone about my life, I thought about the words about Enoch. Enoch was an incredible man of God. Hebrews 11:5 says that by faith... Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. In other words, he just disappeared one day. He was walking with God for like 800 some years and, and God just said, you know, you're closer to my house than yours. Let's just go. And so I don't even know if you get an epitaph if you don't actually die, but I love what's said about him. Here's what it says in the next verse. It says, for before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Now, come on, wouldn't you want that to be written in stone about your life? Here lies one who pleased God. I mean, what a, what a thought. Or, or I was thinking about Noah, who built the ark. Genesis 6, 9 says that this is the account of Noah and his family. Think about this epitaph. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. What a legacy. Righteous, blameless, walked faithfully with God. Or, or I, I like these words about David in Acts chapter 13, verse 36. It says, now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep, he was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. Now, I know at first glance, that one doesn't look as spectacular as one who pleased God, but think about it. I mean, this is an amazing thing to have said about you. David served God's purpose. It says he did eternal work, that's God's purpose, in contemporary ways in his own generation. Or you can say it like this, timeless truth, timely methods, total commitment, then he died. I'd love to have that said about me. He preached timeless truth in timely ways with total commitment. Or, or how about this statement about Samuel? The prophet Samuel, it was said of him. This is when uh, Saul, before he was king, was looking for somebody to help. Him and his servant were looking for answers. And his servant replied to him in 1 Samuel 9, 6. Look, in this town, there's a man of God. He is highly respected and everything he says comes true. Come on, wouldn't you want that to be said about you? In this town, there's a woman of God. She's highly respected, and everything she says comes true. I love that. I, I read an uh, article recently about a woman named Catherine Andrews. Catherine died at uh, 97 years of age back on, in December of 2019. But the reason the article was written was because th there was a, a, a delicious part of her legacy that lives on today. And if you think I chose a weird adjective to describe her life, let me explain why. Because if you go 
to the Logan City Cemetery in Utah to the burial plot of Catherine Andrews, what you'll find inscribed on the epitaph is her famous recipe for fudge. <laughs> now, if you've been thinking about making fudge, maybe you want to take a picture of this because that better be some good fudge. I mean, if that's your legacy, I mean, you, you know, like that's, that's it. Like this is, this is what I'm known for. And I have questions. I mean, did, did she say, you know, when people said, like, can I get your fudge recipe? I'm taking it to my grave with me. And then she had this planned all along, like, ha ha. Or, or was it, I don't know, was it spite? Maybe her kids were like, she never shared that recipe. We're going to tell everybody Kay's famous fudge. You know, maybe they found it in a, in a drawer somewhere. I don't know, but, but, but that's Kay's story. That's her life, legacy. And here's the question I want to ask you to consider for a few moments this morning. What would it take for the epitaph of your life, for that thing that is etched in stone about you when you're gone, to look like this headstone? Courage. Courage. As I was meditating on that thought this week, four ideas came to the surface in my mind. Now, this isn't everything, I'm sure, but I think these are four requirements of a life and a legacy of courage. I want to speak to you about these four things. Number one, we have to speak. We have to speak truth with clarity. Number two, we have to show love authentically. Thirdly, we have to seek God with purity. And fourthly, we have to sacrifice for others generously. We're talking about evangelism, discipleship, worship, compassion. If we're going to have a, a, an epitaph of courage, I believe it starts with speaking truth with clarity. If you have your Bible, go with me to Acts chapter 3 and 4. There's an incredible story there of Peter and John, two of the apostles, after Jesus has ascended back up to heaven. They're going into uh, worship, and they're passing a gate called Beautiful. And the Bible tells us in Acts 3 that there was a man that was crippled from birth, and he was brought to the temple gate every day to beg from the worshipers coming in. Later in chapter 4, we learn that not only was he crippled from birth and brought there every day, but the man was over 40 years old. So for decades, people are coming to worship, and, and, and there's this guy that's sitting there. And I, I'm sure he's kind of an eyesore on the, on the temple steps, and, and he's begging for, for people to, and that's how he makes his living. You know, there's, there's no welfare system. It's just the compassion of people. And, but on this particular day, Peter and John are walking in at the time of prayer, and they see the man begging for alms. And Peter says to him, silver and gold, I do not have. But what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up. And the man stands up on his feet, completely made whole. Come on, how many of you believe God still does miracles? Amen. So, so now the people are coming to worship, and instead of seeing this guy sitting there on the front porch 
on the stoop. He's now in the parking lot. He's jumping and he's shouting and he's telling everybody. And so there's a crowd that gathers and Peter and John begin to declare to that crowd, it is Jesus who was crucified and who rose from the dead, who gave us the power and authority to heal this man. Well, the religious leaders didn't like that. And so they threw Peter and John in jail. The next morning, it says they, they brought them before the council of the religious leaders. And, and, and I love what it says here in Acts chapter 4 and verse 7. Look at this with me. It says, they had Peter and John brought before them and they began to question them, saying, by what power and what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and we are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Now, let me just say, he was not just saying in general, because we're all sinners, we crucified Jesus. He's literally looking into the eyes of the men who just a few weeks earlier crucified Jesus. This is a moment of incredible courage. And Peter says to them in verse 11, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the chief cornerstone. Now, when he said that, they all knew what he was talking about because now he's quoting Psalm chapter 118. It's actually the song that they were singing when Jesus had rode a donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday just a few weeks earlier. And all the people were singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Peter quotes that chapter and he says, that's who Jesus is. And then he makes this incredible statement, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Can I just say there's not a more clear presentation of the gospel than that verse right there? I mean, he's not mincing words here. He's like, this is it. This is the only way. He's the only name. I'm talking about having courage to speak the truth with clarity. And look at what it says. Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Come on, what better thing could you have said about you? Not that you were uh, intellectual or that, that you knew a lot of information or, or that you were verbose in your presentation, but when people heard what you said and saw the courage you said it with, they just said, this guy's been with Jesus. There, there's no other way to explain this. We need, in our generation, to speak truth with clarity. Paul the Apostle warned a young pastor coming up under him named Timothy that he was going to face a reality that not everybody wants to hear the truth. And how many of you know that's true in our day? He told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 and 3, the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. In other words, the time is coming where people don't want to hear the truth. 
They, they don't want to hear that there's no other name given under heaven that men can be saved by. They want to hear that there's all kinds of options. There's all kinds of roads that lead to heaven. They don't want something that's not politically correct or, or socially palatable. They're gonna, their ears are itching for a message that, it, that is just a whole lot easier for us to all accept. And, and Pete, Paul says that, that time is coming. How many of you know the time came? We're living in that reality, and he's not the only one that spoke of it. Jesus even told his disciples, like, I want you to have courage when you speak the word of God. And he gave them several reasons to have courage. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 24 through 31, Jesus says to the apostles, and the reason he's saying it is because he wants them to speak the truth with clarity. He says, the student is not above the teacher, nor is a servant above his master. In other words, he's saying, you're not above me. He's saying it is, in verse 25, it's enough for the student to be like the teacher and a servant to be like the master. So if the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of the household? What Jesus is saying is, these people, they call me the devil. So if they call me the devil, what do you think they're going to think about you? And he's actually, it sounds negative, but he's actually encouraging them. In the very next verse, he says this, so do not be afraid. You don't have to be afraid when you're persecuted for speaking the truth because Jesus was persecuted for speaking the truth. So he says, when they come against you, you can take comfort in knowing that, 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 that they're coming against Christ in you. And then he says this, he says, nothing that is concealed will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim it from the roofs. And then he says it again in verse 28. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of those that can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. In other words, he's like, look, the worst they can do to you, the worst they can do to you is just escort you right into the presence of God where there is pleasures at his right hand and enjoy forevermore. Like that's as bad as it gets for the church. So he says, you don't have to be afraid. Have an eternal perspective. Verse 29, he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. In other words, he says, Jesus says, you don't have to be afraid because God pays incredible attention to detail. Like God sees every sparrow that falls from the sky. And if he cares for the sparrow, he cares a lot more for you. And, and God knows, so, knows you so intricately that, that he knows every hair on your head. Some of you are like, so do I. But he has them numbered. He has them numbered. He knows which ones went down the drain this morning. Like, and so here he says again in verse 31 for the third time. He says, so don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. He's calling us to speak the truth with clarity. Now here's the second thing. If we're going to be a people that the epitaph of our life in our generation is courage. Not only do we have to speak the truth with clarity, but we have to show love authentically. 
You know, Proverbs 28, one, it's a great verse. It says, the righteous are as bold as a lion. I love that idea. We need that in our day and age. We need boldness in the church. We need conviction to stand up and speak the truth. But can I balance that statement in saying that though the, the righteous are as bold as a lion, that doesn't give us license to bite people's heads off. Right? And there's a lot of people like, in the name of speaking the truth, are, are, are just blasting people, using the word of God as, as their arsenal. John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus said this to his disciples and to us. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. But can I tell you, when he said that, honestly, that's not a new command. And when they heard it, they were probably thinking, that's not a new command. We've been, we've been taught that our whole lives. Love one another. That's old, that's old Testament stuff. But the new part was the next part. He said, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And Jesus in just the next few hours is gonna set the standard of his love. He, he would say to them, there's no greater love than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. That's exactly what Jesus will do in just the next couple of chapters in John's gospel. He laid down his life for them. And so he sets this, this new standard. This is more than the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is the platinum rule. Do unto others as Jesus has done for you. And then he says in verse 35, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if... You love one another. I don't know if you saw the, the uh, He Gets Us commercial that played during the Super Bowl uh, last week. It, it, it was a, really, it was an advertisement for Jesus. Uh, and, and so the, the commercial showed several images of, of people uh, demonstrating Christ's likeness. Uh, there's a picture here that if you saw it, maybe this will jog your memory. This was just one of the scenes and all of them were similar. It was, uh, it was a, a Christian kneeling down and washing the feet of someone that maybe the world would not expect us to serve. In this case, it's a, a young lady outside of what looks like an abortion clinic, and, and there's people picketing in the background, but this woman is serving her in love. And As soon as that commercial aired, then they also released it on Instagram and all their social media platforms, and the comment section blew up. I don't know if you saw any of this. You probably had to just like pray afterwards because you felt filthy. That's how I felt after I read the comment section of all the Christians talking about a, a commercial for Jesus in the Super Bowl. And, and here was the reality. There was two opinions primarily. One side is people going, we got to tell people the truth. We're not just out here washing their feet. You know, those people with the picket signs, they're the ones speaking the truth. We got to let them know what the Bible says. Don't just wash their feet. And then the other people are going, we got to love people. We got to just show them grace. And so one side is saying, give them the truth. And the other side is saying, show them grace. And, and here's the deal. Jesus is both. He's both. When Jesus stepped into the world, John chapter 1 verse 14 says, The word of God became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And when they saw his glory, what did they see? The fullness of grace and truth. Grace and truth. 
Sometimes the most courageous thing you can do is just speak the, the truth to, to a hostile audience, just like Peter and John did. But sometimes the most courageous thing you can do is love people that disagree with you. And, and here, here's, here's part of the problem. Like, words matter. And, and in our generation, in our day, our culture has changed the definition of what tolerance means. So today, tolerance is defined as accepting everybody's view as true. And if tolerance means accepting everybody's view as true, and we hold to what Peter said in Acts chapter 4, that Jesus is the, the one and only, and his name alone can bring salvation, then we're going to be labeled intolerant. Historically, tolerance doesn't mean accepting all views as true. Tolerance means putting up with people that you find disagreeable, people that you think are maybe wrong or false. You, you tolerate it anyway. You know, my wife and I were, were on a plane last week, and, and there were people on that plane with, with small kids. Those kids were screaming their head off. But I tolerated it. I didn't agree with it. I wouldn't have chosen the path of parenting that some of those other folks were taking. I didn't, I didn't get out of my seat and go coach them or tell them how to parent. I, I tolerated it. And a lot of Christians are so afraid of, of looking like they accept all views, the world's definition of tolerance. They're so afraid of looking like they accept and embrace all views that we've stopped loving people in Jesus' name. Can I just say this to all, all the Christians in the room today and those watching online? We don't love people so they come to Jesus. We love people because we came to Jesus. If it didn't cost so much, I'd drop this mic right now. <laughs> Courage requires that we speak the truth with clarity, but it also requires that we show love authentically. Thirdly, we have to seek God with purity. Now, I love the story of Daniel in the Old Testament. I mean, you want to talk about somebody who is the personification of courage. It's Daniel chapter 6. He's been thrown into the lion's den for his faith. And, and there he is. He's, he's, you know, eyeball to eyeball with a hungry den of lions. Like, that's the picture of courage. But, but can I just tell you today that courage is not something that's found in that moment. Courage is something that is forged in the secret place. When I talk about courage, I'm not talking about a, a moment of bravery or, or heroism. I'm talking about something that is forged in your character. And, and for Daniel, it was long before he was thrown into the lion's den. It was all the way back in chapter 1 when he had been taken as an exile into captivity in Babylon. And, and he was chosen because of his, uh, his intellect, among others, to be indoctrinated with Babylonian culture. They were going to change the way he spoke. They were going to change his language, the way he did his hair, the clothes he wore, even the food that he ate. And David, or Daniel rather, stood up for his convictions in that moment. In Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, he, he chose not to defile himself with the food from the king's table. I mean, it was a small compromise. Most people would go, you know, in light of the fact that you've been, you know, ripped out of your home and taken into a foreign country and, and you know, you're being, you know, you're being programmed to do all these things and to serve in the king's palace, uh, you know, what you eat. Not a big deal. But for Daniel, it was. It, it was a thing of purity. 
He said, no, I, I, the things that I abstain from eating, I do so because of the dietary laws of God's people in the Old Covenant. And so he stood for his convictions in that moment. And then you get into Daniel chapter 6 and you realize the very thing that got him thrown into the lion's den was courage. Because when the, the satraps and the leaders couldn't find anything against his character to smear his name, the only thing they could bring against him was his prayer life. And so they, they got the king to put a law in place saying nobody can pray to any other God except to the king. And then the Bible says after Daniel heard that decree, he went back to his house as was his custom. He opened the window facing east and he prayed to God for help. Here's a man who is seeking God with purity. He's saying, I, I, I've all, this is what I've always done. J just because now there's a law against it, I'm, I'm gonna seek the Lord with my whole heart. And so he begins to do that and they catch him in the act and he's thrown into the lion's den. This next week, we're gonna do something as a church. This is actually the third year that we've done this together. Starting next Sunday from March 3rd to the 23rd, we're calling our church to 21 days of fasting and prayer. Talking about seeking God with a pure heart. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you say, I've, I've never fasted before. Uh, I didn't even think that was a, a, a thing that we're supposed to do. Jesus actually taught about fasting in Matthew chapter six, and he didn't say, if you fast, here's how you do it. He said, when you fast. He assumed that we would, in fact, all through church history, fasting has been coupled with prayer up until the Enlightenment age. And then we got to the Enlightenment age and everything had to make sense. And can I just tell you, in the natural, intellectually, it doesn't make sense to say, if I don't eat this food, God's gonna answer my prayer over here. Like, it's hard to make sense of that intellectually. And so we got away from fasting. But God never got away from calling his people to fasting and to prayer. And so we're going to take 21 days to be intentional. And the 21, the number is, is not necessarily a, a magic number or anything like that. We get it from the life of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 10, God gave him this incredible vision of the future, and he didn't really know what to do with it. So he spent uh, several weeks just seeking God and praying. And after three weeks, an angel of the Lord comes and puts his hand on him and he, and he speaks to him and he gives him this incredible message in Daniel chapter 10. The angel of the Lord says to him in verse 12, don't be afraid, Daniel, since the first day you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to them. Isn't that an encouraging thought? That I mean, here, we don't always get to see behind the veil of the physical world into the spiritual world, but this is one of those moments. We get a glimpse at what happens in the heavenlies when we pray. And the angel said, the moment you prayed, I heard you. The moment you prayed, I heard you. And I'm sure you would be thinking what Daniel was thinking, like, then why are you coming now? But look at what it says in verse 13. But the angel says, the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me for 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet 
to come. This is amazing. Like we, we get a glimpse at what spiritual warfare actually looks like. That's a term we throw around in the church, oftentimes talking about praying and we say, hey, let's do warfare. You know, what does that actually mean? Well, in Daniel 10, we get a picture that th this is not a metaphor. He says, this is real. Like I heard your prayer and I was coming with the answer, but there was powers and principalities in this region that were fighting against me. But because God responds to prayer, he sent Michael, one of the archangels, and he came for backup, and now I'm here to bring the answer to the prayer you've been praying. Amazing. So what we're going to do is we're going to move into 21 days together of believing and saying, God, we want to see you do the things that we're believing you can do in our personal lives, in our church. David Mathis says this about fasting. He said, fasting is a desperate measure for desperate times among those who know themselves desperate for God. I don't have time to, to articulate all the details of what your fast can look like, but let me just say, I, I'm not imposing New Testament dietary laws on anyone. That's not, that's not the goal of fasting. So we, we've created a page on our website. If you just go to rightsvillechurch.com slash fast. There's gonna be lots of resources there. You can see that there's a lot of ways to fast. A total fast is just to say, I'm just gonna drink water, I'm not gonna eat anything, and I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna pray and seek the Lord. Or maybe you would do like a liquid fast and say, I'm, I'm not gonna eat anything, but I'm gonna get some nutrients and just do a liquid fast. Or there's the Daniel fast, which is modeled after his decision to honor God and abstain from the choice foods of the king's table. So a Daniel fast is a partial fast. It's not about how much you eat or don't eat. It's what types of food you eat. It means no sweets, no meats, no breads, or dairy. And we've got all kinds of recipes and shopping lists and things on that website, rightsfieldchurch.com slash fast if you want to do a Daniel fast. You heard the announcement earlier about our revival nights. During the three Wednesday nights of our prayer and fasting, we're bringing in these guest speakers and we're just raising the intensity of our expectation on those Wednesday night gatherings. Some of you have never been to a Wednesday night gathering, but you need to mark your calendar for the, three, the first three Wednesday nights in March. And uh, if you're doing the Daniel fast or a partial fast, some of our team is gonna be providing a Daniel fast approved soup. So you can come early and, and get a bite to eat and, and then just come into the sanctuary here for the 7 p.m. revival night service. I, I wanna encourage you though to, to take that step of faith. Fasting is... It's, here's what it is. It's a concrete way to offer God a sacrifice. We often talk about, you know, giving God a sacrifice of praise. You know, and we just, oh, okay, let's clap our hands. But when have you really sacrificed for no other reason but just for God? Well, that's what fasting is. Jesus said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. I can't think of a more practical way to deny myself than to literally not give my body the food that it craves. For no other purpose except to draw close to the heart of Jesus. Fasting helps us focus in on God and hear him more clearly for our lives. Fasting is a way to intensify your prayer life. Fasting is a spiritual discipline. It helps you grow in your faith. It's just one discipline, but man, if I can do this, if I can conquer my own appetite for the sake of the glory of God and his purpose in my life, what other habits and addictions 
can I break? As I said earlier, this is our third year doing this and every year we've had people testify that during the fasting time, God gave them freedom over other bondages in their life. Fasting disconnects us from the world while prayer connects us to God. So we're not just skipping meals, we're seeking God. We're seeking him with a wholehearted pursuit. It's about drawing near to him and crucifying your flesh, your own desires to awaken a spiritual appetite. When you get serious enough about what God can do, that you're actually willing to sacrifice what you wanna do. That's the kind of faith that moves the heart of God. So if you've never participated, another type of fast is just a, a sun up to sun down fast. You know, call, some call that the, uh, the Wesley fast because John Wesley and Charles Wesley, they, those preachers from previous uh, generations, they, they, they didn't even think you were saved if you weren't fasting at least twice a week. I mean, come on. Like surely you're fasting twice a week. And so just saying from sun up to sundown, intermittent fasting. It's, it's funny how science, you know, it's so popular today, intermittent fasting. Everybody's talking about the health benefits. Like, isn't it funny how the more we know, the more we align with God's word? <laughs> like the church has been doing that for thousands and thousands of years. And now, you know, medical science is telling us about the benefits of fasting. There are benefits. You might even lose some weight, but that's not what we're doing it for. We're doing it to go after the heart of God. And I wanna invite you and challenge you to be a part of it with us. The last thing, and our, our time is waning away here, but I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this today because I think this is a timely word. I wanna challenge you, fourthly, to sacrifice for others generously. Like, it, what does it look like for a person to say, and that person lived a life of courage. Well, can I just say, you can't be selfish and courageous. They, they just don't mix. And so something of your life and your testimony has to be sacrificing for others generously. In fact, that was the epitaph of the New Testament church. I, I love what it says about the New Testament church collective in Acts chapter 4. Verse 33, it says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But look at what it says about the church. It says, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Like, don't you want that to be the story of this church? Like, God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them. Well, what does that look like? It looks like radical generosity. Look at the description in the next verse. It says, there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales. Like, what, what would it look like if God's grace was evidently, powerfully at work in all of us? It would look like compassion. Compassion. The, the thing that God has done in me is overflowed in rich generosity. I don't even think we understand compassion fully. Let me break the word down for you. Compassion. Co means with. With. means I'm, I'm with you. Passion means suffering. 
In Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, the Bible says of Jesus, after his suffering, he presented himself to his disciples. But the older translations say after his passion. That's what suffering means, passion. You remember the movie that came out several years ago, The Passion of the Christ. It was all about his suffering. And so to have compassion for people is to suffer with someone. You know, that's one of the benefits of fasting. It gives us the opportunity to stand in solidarity with people that don't have anything to eat. Most of us as Americans, we don't have a clue what that's like. But it's amazing how your heart begins to bend towards the heart of God when you actually suffer with someone. You go, man, I'm hungry. I mean, this is hard. It sounded spiritual when he said it on Sunday, but on Monday, this is just hard. This is not fun at all. And then God gets a hold of your heart. So we're gonna do something on Easter Sunday this year. We're gonna, we're gonna celebrate a campaign called One Day. One Day to Feed the World. And we did this last year, and, and the idea of one day, you'll hear about it in the weeks to come, but the idea of one day is that you take one day's wages out of a whole year, one day's wages to feed people who have no food for a whole year. Last year, we did this collectively as a church. We were able to give $25,000 away on Easter Sunday just to feed people. Like, it's so awesome. Just to, again, we, we don't feed people so they'll love Jesus. We feed them because we love Jesus. And they're hungry. So I want to challenge you to have a heart of compassion, to sacrifice for others generously. That kind of compassion, that, that kind of radical generosity is exactly what Paul described as the testimony of the Macedonian church. You remember in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul talks about this church, and he's, he's writing to one church that he, he started, and he's, he's bragging on another church as he gets to Macedonia. He can't believe what he sees. Let, let me just read this to you. Paul says, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian church. Now, again, we talk about grace all the time. Usually, we're talking about forgiveness of sins. You know, we're talking about, you know, getting a second chance. And that's awesome. Grace is all those things. But that's not what Paul was talking about. He said, I want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian church. Verse 2, in the midst of severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. That, that formula doesn't make any sense. How does overflowing joy and extreme poverty equal rich generosity? There's only one way to describe it. He said it was the grace that was given to him. In fact, he says in verse three, for I testify they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. See, it's, it's evidence of God's grace because it's not natural. It's not natural for us to give beyond our means. It's, it's not natural for us to do that. We are naturally selfish. You don't believe that? Just go take a box of cookies to the nursery. You don't have to teach selfishness. It's gonna be survival of the fittest in there.
Look at the next verse, verse four. He says, they, the Macedonians, they urgently pleaded with us. I mean, they were in extreme poverty. We're there to meet their needs. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, they, first of all, they gave themselves to the Lord. That, that's the tithe. And then by the will of God also to us. That's the offerings. Like they, they just exceeded our expectations. He says, so we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Like he said, when I saw the grace of God in the Macedonian church, we sent Titus to say, we wanna see that in Corinth. And I wanna see that in Wrightsville that we would see the grace of God demonstrated as compassion for others. Radical generosity. Verse seven, he says, but since you excel in everything, in your faith and speech and knowledge, in complete earnestness and in the love that we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. Now don't get nervous, I'm not about to end with an offering. But I, I, want, I want you to allow the Lord to speak to your heart today about what does it look like to live a life of courage? Living a life that is self-centered is not congruent with a life of courage. Last week, I made the announcement. I wanna say it again because I realize not everybody's here every weekend and this is worth celebrating. Last week, I announced to the church that, that we got the contract signed on the property that we're purchasing for our future location. We're, we're excited about that, amen, yeah. And, and I mentioned last week and you heard it in the announcements today that uh, the price of that property is $780,000. So la la literally last Sunday, some of our board members signed a deposit check for $10,000 uh, to, to meet that initial requirement. So we, we sent a, a check. Now here's, here's how cool God is. Uh, also, last week, uh, we, we have someone in our church that uh, they, they just received back pay from their company which has been in litigation with their union since the COVID outbreak in 2020. Well, they, they finally resolved all that and they got their back pay. So on the same morning that two of our board members were signing a check for $10,000, the first seed to go in the ground for the property we're gonna purchase, one of our members showed up last Sunday morning and wrote out a $10,000 tithe check and put it in the offering. Isn't that awesome? And I, I just believe that's just the beginning. I, I think there's gonna be so many stories like that that we're gonna go, God's grace was on them all. Like, how did that happen? God's grace was on them all. This is the stuff of 2 Corinthians 8, 3, when he says they gave entirely as much as they were able and beyond their ability, entirely on their own. This is the stuff of Acts 4 when it says there was no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who own land or houses sold it. They brought the money from the sales. I mean, last weekend, I, I kind of half-jokingly, I said, hey, if, you know, 300 of you will write a check for $2,900, we can just pay for the land. You know, and I was kind of joking because God's not asking all of us to give the same amount. We don't have the same resources. That's not how the kingdom and economy of God works. But I do want to challenge you to be courageous and to do your part. 
You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. One of the biggest businesses in America today is storage facilities. Have you noticed how many storage facilities are going on? Like we literally pay people to hold on to the stuff that we don't have room for. And so when I read scriptures about the New Testament church and people sold their possessions and they met needs, I'm thinking, man, that, it wouldn't be hard for some of us to give thousands of dollars this year and it wouldn't even be a sacrifice. Like we're literally paying people to keep stuff we don't want in our house in a climate controlled atmosphere. Like we could just sell some possessions and, and watch God do amazing things through it. I wanna challenge you to be a person that lives courageously. And, and, and to be very pointed, I wanna ask you to really consider, just take an inventory of your life right now, an inventory of what you have, what you spend on things that you don't need or things you could easily live without. And would you be so bold as to ask God to demonstrate his grace powerfully through your life? I mean, thank God he saved us, that, that's, that's amazing. But what would a demonstration of God's grace look like powerfully in your life. I wanna pray as we get ready to end this service. And if you're able, would you just stand just to honor the presence of the Lord in these closing moments? I wanna pray all four of these points because I know I've said a lot today and I don't expect you to remember it all, but as always, here's what I'm praying. Lord, would you just, would you just come down with a Holy Spirit highlighter and just make something so pronounced, so profound that we leave changed, even if it's just one thing. So would you just bow your head with me all over this room? And, and I wanna pray for Christians. Listen, if you're not saved, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, please don't misunderstand. All these things we're talking about are, are not things that we're asking you to do so that you can be in a right relationship with God. We're saying once Jesus saves you, transforms your life, makes you a new creation from the inside out, this is just what it looks like. We evangelize, we disciple, we have fellowship with one another, we worship God, and we show compassion. It's Christ in us. So if you don't know the Lord today, that's your next step. Surrender. Just surrender your life to Him today. Say, Jesus, I... I wanna live a life of purpose. I wanna live a life worth writing about. Let something of significance be etched in my story and let it begin by you giving control over to Jesus. Now I wanna pray for those that have. God, would you help us today to be a people that speak truth with clarity? There are some of us, we've, we've made every excuse in the book to, to keep our lips locked and our testimony sealed. But your word declares that we overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. And some of us, our victory is on the other side of our obedience to speak the truth with clarity. God, give us courage in this day of cancel culture, in this day of people twisting words and using them against you and maligning you and ostracizing you, in this day where we have business professionals and teachers and nurses that are losing their job for their convictions, God, give us courage to speak the truth with clarity. God, I pray that we would show love authentically, that, that our desire to uphold the truth would never become the opponent of our call to show love. God, help us to be what Jesus was, 
grace and truth. God, help us if, we, if, we've, if we've become jaded and cynical about certain corners of our population. If, if in our honesty, we would have to say, I just don't love those people. God, help us. You set the platinum standard and you said we're to love the way you love. From the cross, you forgave your enemies. God, help us today to be a people that seek you with purity. I pray that we would practically just respond this week by determining March 3rd through the 23rd. We're gonna intensify our pursuit of your presence through prayer and fasting. God, not, not that we would twist your arm, try to get something from you, but God, that we would just say, we want, we want what you want for us. And so we're gonna seek you with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. God, would you help us to be a courageous people that sacrifice for others generously, that we would give, that we would meet immediate needs by feeding the hungry, and, and we would meet uh, long-term needs by, by building a house that would change this community. God, we pray that we would be a people that the story told of us is that God's grace was powerfully at work in them all. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for what you're doing. Lord, we yield to the authority of your word in our lives and we lean, lean in with expectation for what you wanna do in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Come on, can we just let the Lord know we love him today? Amen. Amen.